Thank you. Thank, thanks for coming at uh, late in the afternoon when we've already had a full day. I appreciate your being here. I thought it was going to be about five of us having a really intimate conversation, but there's many of you, and you're spread all around the room. Kind of a crazy configuration. We'll see how we if we can make this work for us. Um, it's been a couple of years since I. Uh, proposed this topic and this workshop. So I was trying to remember, what, what did I have in mind when I said I wanted to talk about research and reading? And I, I think it was this, that um, I've, been a, I've been an administrator at Kelvin for um, quite a few years and just recently returned to, to my area of, of teaching full-time and um, teaching and research and reading, my interest, which is the teaching of reading. And I think when I returned to that um, a couple of years ago, and started uh, teaching more classes at Calvin. I teach the graduate program and the undergraduate program. Then I thought, oh wow, there's a lot of lot of new things I'm learning. And I did my, my did my doctorate at the University of Toronto. Oh, in 1995, so quite a long time ago. And so then when I returned to this topic of t and teaching these classes, and I went to the International Literacy Association conference, and I read some articles, and I uh, went to some workshops, uh, read some research. Talked with some colleagues. I've got a, I've got a neat little group of people. Uh, one from Hope College, and one is from Cornerstone, and one is from Aquinas. And we all do literacy, and we meet together and talk together and share articles. And I thought, oh, there's a lot of new things happening. And I thought it's worth talking about those together. Um, so I think that's why uh, I pr propose this topic. And then I looked at my title. My wife, who's an English teacher, says, you're, you're really bad at titles. And I think she's right. My titles are not very good. I thought, I probably shouldn't have posed it this way. I didn't tell you enough about what kind of research I'm going to talk about, uh, how, to pro how, to, how to narrow that topic down. Because it's a really big topic. Reading is a really big topic. The research around reading is a really big topic. Um, and I think um, you know. I don't need to tell you this. There's a lot of things I don't know about the research about reading. It's a huge topic. There's lots of things you in the room here know, and, and I'm hoping that I can open up conversation and you can learn from each other, and that you can bring your I, that the things that you've been learning into the room. Um, I also thought, I'm not, I don't think I want to do a PowerPoint. I want to make it a bit more interactive than that. And, um, and that might create more conversation between you and others in the room. Um, so I want to I try to go at this a different way and see if that's helpful to you. Maybe that was a good choice since we have people off, way off in that corner and wouldn't be able to see a PowerPoint anyway. So I guess I made a good choice there. Um, uh, Parker, Parker Palmer uh, taught me some years ago, reading Parker Palmer, that any subject area, whether you teach history or science or whatever it might be, any area you teach um, is... is far too complex for you to really know. And he, he talked about the mysterium, tremendum, kind of a fancy term, but that there's a mystery there and that we come at this subject and we don't know it at all. We all know some part of it. And we, um, and we try to lead other people into understanding it, but it's not, uh, my understanding is not what your understanding is. And you know things about that subject because you come at it from a different angle. I think all of you in the room are better elementary school teachers than I am. If you put me in your room on Monday, I don't think things would go that great. And I know this not just from guessing. Some years ago, I quit my college job for a year, took a sabbatical, and went and taught elementary school. 
wow, I felt like a first-year teacher stepping into the classroom. All the questions about how to organize instruction effectively, it's just really, uh, it, was really it was really quite humbling. What I do know, and I, is I, I do know some of the research about reading because I have a chance to read that, because I have a chance to work with other people on that, because I have a chance to uh, teach graduate classes at Kelvin, and some of the, my graduate students, um, we learn we learn really interesting things together. So that's that's what I can add to the conversation. But I want I want you to understand that you know probably where the rubber hits the road, what it looks like on Monday in your first grade class or fifth grade class. There's things around that organization, that effectiveness, and how you organize instruction that I'm just not aware of. I way overshot the six people. How many people do we have in here? This is a lot of people. Thank you for coming, everybody. Wow. Um, thanks for coming. Well, here, here's the part where I'm going to make you dislike me a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to get you out of your comfort zone a little bit. I want you to, uh, I want you, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to meet somebody that you've never talked to before. Uh, so I want you to, um, I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to ask you all to stand up wherever you are. Everybody's going to stand up in a minute. And they're going to look around, and they're going to try to find somebody that they've never talked to before, they've never met before. And they're going to take their stuff and move to a new spot. The two of you are going to sit down and talk for a few minutes and get to know somebody and um, find out where they teach, a few things you uh, want to know about them. And then after you do that, maybe you can talk for a few minutes about what is it that, what is it that you want to know about the teaching of reading? Why, why are you at this workshop? What, what's your experience right now in the teaching of reading in your uh, current situation? And then we'll come back out together. So now is the point where you all stand up and we all move to a new place. Oh my! And we all find a partner. I'm okay staying. Me too. Yeah, absolutely.
somebody new? You're not thinking What I have for you and your partner, and I think there's probably not enough for both of you to have, but I want you to work together on this on this little quiz. Um, this, this quiz has 17 kind of random points. You do not need to work through one through 17 in order. What I suggest is that you and your partner just read through it quickly, look at the topics and say, oh, let's talk about that one and do that one. Because I don't think you'll have time to go one through 17, and there might be some of these that you don't care about at all. Some you say, oh, that's an interesting one. Let's talk about that one together and figure that one out. So, so there won't be enough time to go through it completely. In a little while, I'm going to hand I'm going to hand out something where that gives you some of the answers or some some guidance about what they say, and then we're going to and then we're going to talk about those things. And I want to know what you want to talk about. It's hard to know. Good teaching always comes from knowing your students. I have no idea who you are or what you know and what you how you come to this. So conventions are inherently problematic then, right? So I'm trying to make it a bit more eclectic to see if I can respond to the things that are interesting to you and um, and also leverage expertise that's in the room, because some of you know a lot about the teaching of reading and uh, about the research about reading. So, so your task now is to work with your partner. You can work through any of these 17 questions, start any place you want. Make sense? Everybody, every group have one? Okay. Okay, go into it. <laughs>
getting bothered by the tent. Some of you are, 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 are getting distracted by the 10 highly frequent words, so I'll just give you a quick... Find, you have to find three T words, three I words, two A words, and then two random ones. Two T, three T words, three I words, two A words, and then two others. So there you go, little hint.
sentence, but um, I'm, here's your next task. I want your group to get together with another group, and I'd like you in the next 10 minutes to decide on three topics that are on these part of these 17 things, or a different topic, but three topics that your group would like to bring to the rest of the group for discussion, like because you find it important. So which thing do you, does your group think are important or interesting or worth talking about? Can, so can you, two people get together with two other people? You don't know them, that'd be better yet. They have a So get together with another group
probably didn't give you enough time for that either, but if I could break into your conversations again, I would like to... I would like to ask that you have uh, that you assign a reporter in your group, and we'll make the we'll make the reporter in your group who will be responsible for bringing up at least one point that your group thought was important. We'll say that's the person whose birthday is coming up the soonest from now. So that's the reporter in your group. Find out whose birthday is coming up the soonest in your group. They are your reporter. Which group would like to jump in first with a question or comment or something they thought would be interesting to talk about? Volunteers. Otherwise, we'll just start. The first one I already listed was number nine. Number nine. You want to say anything more about that? Why number nine? You were just saying, and I think part of it is that I misread the question. At first, I thought it was Phonics is not the most helpful when all you do is like how important phonics is. Oh. But it's saying phonics rules. Um, and so I don't know, I feel like they are always constantly flipping back and forth between phonics is important, phonics is not important. Oh. Um, and I yeah. teach kindergarten and feel like it's very important. So Yeah, so so if that if if uh, if any of you have any doubt about whether phonics is important, you should dispel all of that. You should dispel it's 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 very clear that phonics is, is very important. Every one of you has had students who come into your class and they're reading already. And so you say, see, they don't need phonics. But the students who, are, the students who don't pick up as quickly on reading and on decoding and the symbols, they need you. And they need systematic phonics instruction with a, with a scope and sequence that's not random, not just incidental. That's, that's a completely settled question by the research. All the research points that way. Now, are there programs that teach phonics way too much? Yes, probably, right? That they do all phonics and they don't care about comprehension uh, and they don't care about you know, engaging uh, instruction. That's true, too. Thank you for that one. Another group. Or, or follow up on that question, anybody. More about that. We didn't really talk about phonics rules, did we? So, I mean, my question to follow up on that and... Could you summarize the book, No More Phonics and Spelling Worksheets? Because that one struck me because I use a lot of phonics and spelling worksheets. Yeah, so, um, so, so I, I, have on, um, I have in the answer sheet there, you, there's, a, there's a No More This and, and Now That list. What number is that? Um, so, there's a, there's a, so there's a whole series, and... I have to be. I have to be honest. I just discovered this series, and I listened to Heidi Mesmer, who did a great International Literacy Association little webinar. And you can sign up for those for thirty bucks, and it's and you can watch it whenever you want, and you can study it, and it's on video. And um, and so I became aware of that series there. Myself, I've always I've always thought that phonics worksheets 
are quite flat instructions. Sometimes not very engaging, sometimes not very much on target, sometimes not as closely related to reading as it could be. Um, so I, so I, I, I haven't read that book, but I suspect it goes in that direction, whereas more active phonics that um, applies to reading more quickly is probably a better thing. Sometimes teachers, when my, when my daughter was in first grade, I was doing my doctorate in reading at the University of Toronto. She was sick and she was home, and she brought her phonics worksheets home, and uh, I thought, great, I get to watch her through her first grade phonics, and I'm studying this in my doctoral program, and I'm just watching her, and she's doing her phonics sheet, and I said, Laura, so, you know, that E at the end makes it silent, and, and I started talking about reading, and she says, Dad, this is not about reading. <laughs> this is about, you do this quickly and neatly, and you get a star on the top. <laughs> for her, it was not about reading. That, that can happen pretty quickly. I don't think she's an exception. And she still tells me all about that. She's a wonderful daughter. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I, I haven't read this book, but I do have misgivings about too many worksheets, and they might be more flat, rather than kind of engaging instruction. Thanks for that question. You, you had a follow-up, or...? Well, I, no, I appreciate that. Okay. okay, another question from a group. Uh, number 15. Number 15. What do you like about number 15? Um, so, you know, if you could kind of summarize what is being talked about with the science of reading. Ah. That's obviously. Yeah, so the science of reading, you've seen this, haven't you? Someplace in the last year or two, I started getting these things popping up in the popular media about the science of reading, science of reading, science of reading. And, um, and I studied the science of reading like 10, 15 years ago, and I've heard nothing about it, and now it's every place. And it's in, it's in the New York Times. Teachers don't know the science of reading. It's in on NPR, National Public Radio. Teachers don't know the science of reading. And this is why we have so many kids who can't read in our country. This is very, very, very simplistic. Uh, when you say, if we, if, we, if, we, if we only did this, then this would solve all the problems. That's always way too simplistic. They say that this idea that phonics is not, um, maybe we should use phonics, maybe not. They say uh, lots of teachers don't believe in phonics. I don't think they're right about that. And I think a lot of teachers want systematic phonics as one part of their instruction. So the science of reading really, um, my, I almost went down a rabbit hole and did the whole workshop on that, but I thought that's not actually what you want to hear about the science of reading completely, do you? Um, but the science of reading um, is really about cognitive, neural, um, basic, very basic research about what we do when we read. Um, do you do you know do you know this little activity? Maybe I can do it quickly. I don't know. It's hard to read, but you use your side. Yeah, on the table back there, there's, there's two big white floors, two, two white sheets um, with letters and numbers on this direction. So the science of reading uh, is actually about basic research, and there's a lot of really good basic research, but it doesn't actually tell us how to read. So if you read Tim Shanahan, it's good to know some of the basic research about how your mind works, how the brain works, but it doesn't actually tell you how to teach reading. For that, you need Tim Shanahan would say lots of instructional experiments. Because sometimes basic research says this, but that, but that is wrong in terms of what instruction, what kind of instruction would help students actually become readers. There's a big gap between basic research and the instruction that we have to do. And so the science of reading is, is kind of used to beat teachers up quite a bit and, uh, and say we're not good reading teachers. And I don't believe that. 
actually, actually they, they implicate me too. They say teacher educators are no good because we don't teach you the right things. So, yeah, it is. Thank you. Okay, thanks. So, um, I don't know if all of you can see this, but I need a volunteer. And since you asked about the basic reading research, I'll have you do it. So what you need to do for me is just sit there and just tell me what colors are these X's. There's groups of them all the way across. Just tell me if it's red, it's black, or purple, or blue, or whatever. And if it's, you can't tell if purple or blue, it's whatever you say it is. Does that make sense? I'm sorry to pick on you, but here. Yep, keep going. Whole thing. Thanks. Can you do it once more with, uh, I didn't use X's this time, but just do it once more for me. Oh. things we didn't know 30 years ago. We know that actually your brain uh, sees words and processes them automatically. So you were reading the word black. Your task was just to tell me what color are those letters, but your brain said black, and you can't make your brain stop. And that's the key to many reading theories, automaticity, and that, you know, when your students recognize words really quickly and automatically, that, that's really important. And they see, we, I, can, I can show you words uh, pseudo words like sealant and ganton, and you read those just as quickly as you read boy and girl. That, that, we've got the patterns, we've got the orthographic mapping of the symbols to the sounds so firmly embedded in our minds at this point that we can read all any word with a, a natural um, English pattern just as quickly as if it's a word we've seen a hundred times. So that's one basic thing that we have to understand about reading and that all reading theories have and that we're trying to get all of our students to that point where they can read all these patterns quickly and automatically. So that's part of the science reading. I, don't, I feel like I danced around the question a little bit. Did that help with science reading? I think so. So you're saying there's, there's some value in it, but it's being over Oh yeah, you're more you're more articulate than I am. That's exactly right. It's kind of it's it's being oversold. It's it's important, but it doesn't answer all our questions, and and it's not um, and it's not that simple. That if we know the basic science, um, that then we know exactly how to teach reading. In fact, we'll never know exactly how to teach reading. It's too complicated. It's one of the most complicated things the brain does is read, and then how you teach reading with all the different. We'll never know this. It's a very 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 complicated thing. We forget. When I teach my college students, they, they forget how complicated reading is. 
uh, and I try to I make them read uh, Peter's chair backwards, and then they then they remember how hard reading is, how hard reading can be, how difficult. Another question from another group, or a follow up on that one. Yes. Graphophonological <laughs> semantic I think we all have to say that a couple times together. What what number is that? Graphophonological semantic cognitive flexibility. Um, so that you'll see on the sheet of, res of res uh, resources and citations I give you that comes from an article by Nell Duke, a really nice article. About, about comprehension and what we know, what research says about comprehension today. And she's, and this was something new to me. She said, and it sounds like it was kind of new to her too and the other researchers. With it, that, but there's a line of research that says that being able to be flexible and, and go back and go from the letters and be thinking about the letters and what that, what is that word and then what it means is an important skill. We, we don't need this anymore because we have great automaticity with all kinds of words, and I would call all of our site, we've got huge numbers of sight words. We can argue that one too, the sight word term, but, um, but it's just that flexibility. And you can actually, the research suggests that you can do some activities that help students learn to become more flexible about going back and forth. So there's some, there's some exercises where they're looking at letters, they're also thinking about the meaning, what, what would fit the meaning of that particular box. Letters and being together. So it's that kind of flexibility, and it seems to suggest if you teach that, they, uh, it helps them understand, comprehend better. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I thought I'd throw that one in there. That's a brand new term to all of us. Something new that everybody never heard of. Other questions that you'd like to talk about? Either on this paper or pressing issues in your, in your own teaching or your own thinking about the teaching of reading. Orthography, a shallow orthography, a one-to-one -one correspondence between letters. And if the letter, letter almost always says, says the sound that you think it's going to say. Where in English, it's a deeper orthography, and it's a more complicated. Um, and uh, there's predictability and, system, and systematic. Uh, systematic. I don't know how I'll say that. It, English is systematic enough, but not nearly as systematic as Spanish. So it's easier to teach somebody to read in Spanish. The trouble with many uh, Spanish immersion programs is that. Um, when you're teaching somebody to read in kindergarten, first grade, they've got this big oral vocabulary. Uh, if you talk to my, uh, if you talk to my six-year-old granddaughter, we can talk about all kinds of things. She's got a huge oral vocabulary, and then when she learns to read in English, she, she gets some hints about it, and she's got all these words, and she's got meaning going. And it's, but if you teach her to read in Spanish, she has almost no oral vocabulary, and so then the meaning is hard. Uh, quickly recognizing a word because you know the word because it's in your oral, that doesn't happen. So it's a whole different thing. My, um, my, my concern, I, I think Spanish immersion programs are great. I think Spanish, uh, um, there are certain students who shouldn't be in Spanish immersion programs. And I think we should try to think about how to identify those students quite early. 
because some of us are really wired to learn how to read really easily. We don't need a lot of chances to see the patterns. But some of us, our brains are not wired that way. We need more chances, uh, more experience in order to get the patterns implanted. And if we, and if we were one of those students, then, um, then, then, then having them read in a second language rather than their own, um, their own language, that might, that might create reading problems um, that where they never become a good reader in either language. So I, I worry about that part of it. And maybe you're already doing good things. I don't know the, what, what, what's happening. That's bigger That's bigger Okay. But thanks for that question. Did I? Yeah. Somebody over here had a question. Okay. Yeah. 
this is what this is what makes education yeah. incredibly complex because it's always contextual. It's always about a particular student and how they come at things. And so, if if the student's a good reader and already has a, you know phonics is good, lots of patterns are good, they're processing all that. This is not going to hurt them in any way. They're already on the pathway. Yeah. But as a good approach to help us, a reader who needs us, and we always are looking for the students who need us the most, yeah. and giving them the most time and the best instruction, and not just more phonics, which is what we often do with struggling readers, we just give them more phonics, <laughs> they need meaningful reading as well as good phonics instruction. So I, I, so I think it's probably not going to play a role, but it's yeah. not, um, it wouldn't be the go-to for the no, student no. who's struggling. Does that help? That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Other questions from the... The other birthday people who are going to have birthdays soon, where are you in your group? We were wondering what they're, just what's the research saying right now on, in, with phonics? There's been such a change of going back and forth, good and bad, phonological awareness, all that. What are they saying now? What's the place of it and how important is it? Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for that because you picked up phonological awareness. And I was... The, Heidi Ann Mesmer, when I was watching her on the International Literacy Association webinar, she, she, she's in classrooms uh, more than I am. I used to visit student teachers. I don't do that right now, so I'm not in classrooms as much. But she said, I'm, she said I feel like phonological awareness is not always uh, a clear, intentional component in all the kindergartens, first, second grades that I go to. And she said it, it really needs to be. It really needs to be. You have to be, you have to be intentionally saying, yes, I am spending 10, 15 minutes on phonological awareness things with my kindergarten students, my first graders. Uh, and, and if you can do it diagnostically a little bit, you know some groups see more of that. So, so phonological awareness, again, it, it's just knocked out of the park. You've got to do it. You've got to help them. There's always there are good readers who don't need any of this, right? But we're always thinking about how are you a great teacher for the struggling students who you can change the trajectory of their, their career if you give them good instruction. And research says a good teacher changes the trajectory. A really good teacher takes a student with low experience, having more difficulty learning to read for one reason or another. A good teacher can change the trajectory and help them be a good reader. And phonological awareness will be a huge part of that. If, they don't, uh, if they're not aware that words can be broken up into sounds, then they don't have the alphabetic principle. They don't know. It's worth looking at this pattern. And then when you say things to them um, about this is the word can and the C makes the cuss sound, they don't really know what you're talking about and how is that relevant. They don't have the big picture, but this is about, um, this is about words are broken up into sounds. So that's really important. And again, phonics is really important too. Uh, it's got to be, um, I've got a reference from Heidi Ann Mesmer. She's got a book where she lays out a nice scope and sequence. There are different scope and sequences, but she says good, good phonics that follows a pattern. So you're working with maybe um, CBC words first, and then you're working with some other, um, some other uh, strong patterns that have long vowels and things, and then you move on to more things that have a little less regularity, and then you move on to after initial consonants to uh, uh, blends, and you do blends really clearly, then the blends have to be taught, you have to help them blend, and then digraphs. So this has to be part of it. Maybe one, if there's four parts to your program, one part has to be that clear systematic phonics and phonological awareness. Yep. Three minutes. Three minutes, okay. I can give you a short, randomly specific question. Because it talks about the four consonant digraphs. Um, I've seen in some programs, W, so you can be considered a digraph in some programs. 